Great. Hello, everyone. So I'm going to get started. Um, my name is Brian O'Connor. I'm the technical director of the analysis core at the UCSC Genomics Institute. And today I'm going to tell you about our large-scale cloud-based analysis of cancer genomes. Uh, in particular, I'm going to tell you about the lessons that we learned from the PCOG project. So just as an overview for my slides, um, I'm really kind of dividing things into three parts. Uh, with PCOG being the past and sort of lessons learned on how to do large-scale uh, uh, genomics analysis on the cloud. And I'm looking towards the present in terms of translating what we've done into tools that other people can use. And finally, I'm talking about the future uh, through the Global Alliance and establishing standards by which we can have other people use similar infrastructure and have that be compatible with each other through the GA4GH. So just as a background, um, the PCOG project is a large international collaboration, so it stands for Pan-Cancer Analysis of Whole Genomes. It was organized by the ICGC, uh, and it comprises of approximately uh, 5,800 uh, whole human genomes that corresponded to about 2,800 uh, cancer donors, uh, 1,300 of which had RNA-seq data. Uh, now, the goal of the technical working group uh, was to consistently analyze this data set uh, it came from a variety of projects. They used different workflows. So we wanted to en enable scientists to do an awesome analysis on this by having a consistent alignment and variant calling, somatic variant calling pipeline applied to this data set. Uh, the challenges for this project were, you know, its scope and its geographic distribution. Uh, this was not a funded effort. This is actually a collaboration uh, of volunteers all around the world. About 700 scientists were involved in this project. Uh, and that meant we had eight different sites to store the data through uh, a system called Genos, which you can think of it as a multi-server SFTP server. Uh, we peaked at about 900 terabytes with this project. And the, the biggest challenge for my team and I back at OICR was uh, building the infrastructure that could run uh, the consistent um, analysis pipelines across 14 cloud and HPC environments simultaneously. Uh, three of those were commercial, Amazon being our go-to cloud environment on that side, uh, seven OpenStack environments, and four HPC environments. So at the peak of the project, we were uh, managing about 630 VMs across these environments that corresponded to about 15,000 cores. So it was a very challenging infrastructure project for us. In terms of the pipelines themselves, uh, we were trying to establish core analysis pipelines that included BWA-MEM alignment to a standardized genome, and then best practice pipelines that were created uh, with our team and the team at Sanger, DKFZ, Embol, and the Broad for calling somatic variants. Uh, these variant calls would then be filtered and merged and consensus called, and that consensus calling process was validated uh, through a 63-donor validation data set. And further analysis was then uh, done downstream of the filtered, merged, and consensus called variants. Uh, that process was really in full swing by summertime, and now we're in the state of actually uh, working on publications from this project. So it's a very exciting period of time uh, for the PCOG project. Um, from the technical infrastructure side, the challenges of spreading our analysis across so many different environments um, we learned several key lessons that I think are interesting and informative of our future work. Uh, the first one was a, a lesson about cloud policies and how those can really shape the capabilities of what we can do in clouds. Uh, the second was about how to make tools portable when we have so many environments to work in. Uh, the third was about how to make the execution platform uh, distributed and fault tolerant. And finally, we learned a surprising lesson about uh, commercial cloud costs. So on the first side, uh, going into this project, uh, TCGA data we could not place on the commercial clouds, ICGC data we could only uh, transiently process, but things started to change in March of 2015. The NIH updated their dbGaP cloud policy that allowed us to use commercial clouds for processing data. Uh, in May of 2015, the ICGC DACO updated the ICGC cloud policy, and that allowed us to not only compute in those environments uh, but also redistribute uh, ICGC data, which comprised about half this data set, uh, through commercial cloud environments. It enabled really cool partnerships here with Amazon, uh, the public data sets program, allowing us to redistribute PCOG data through, uh, through Amazon S3. And that enabled our partners with Seven Bridges and DNA Nexus that provided compute 
uh, for this platform to access that data within that cloud environment. So that was a small thing in terms of a, a policy change, but it really shifted the way that we did our compute uh, on the project. So originally we would look at a standardized sort of um, single uh, centralized metadata index, uh, figure out what needed to be run across our fleet of clouds, in queue work in those clouds, and then if we were working in Amazon Cloud, uh, spin up spot instances that needed to pull the data from these external um, Genos repositories, these external storage repositories running around the globe. And that was not ideal because that pipe was limited. So we could only pull in so much data to process in, in Amazon. When these policy changes were put into effect, we suddenly could actually host ICGC data within the Amazon environment. We can load it. We could load it into S3, and that allowed us to uh, pre-cache uh, data into that environment, and then do much larger scale compute on that data because of the scalability of S3. And that also allowed us to share within the cloud environment uh, with DNA Nexus and Seven Bridges. So a, a, a great shift for us in that project. It was really something that, that changed the way that we worked. Something else that had a really amazing impact on, on the Peacock project was uh, really seeing Docker uh, released as a 1.0. Um, about halfway through our, our core analysis on this project, Docker uh, released its 1.0, and we felt comfortable using it in this project as a key component. Uh, what we ended up doing is moving to a model where we moved away from a model of building worker nodes on demand using Ansible playbooks to actually set up a worker node from scratch, install all the tools on it, install the workflow. That was a very time-consuming process that was very error-prone. We moved instead to making portable Docker images that contained everything in the kitchen sink. So we included workflow definitions, config files, some of the reference files, all the tools that we needed, and we covered the core pipelines. This was uh, BWA mem alignment and the three somatic variant calling pipelines from Broad, DKFZ, um, Emble, and Sanger. And so this was really transformative for us because suddenly we could move around uh, these lightweight Docker containers. Uh, these Docker images had everything that we needed in them. It really cut down our provisioning process. It really improved the reliability of that provisioning, but also it allowed us to start exploring other environments for compute, including handing these to HPC environments that were participants in PCOG and having those Docker containers run there as well. So the third lesson that we learned is really, you know, building and running uh, infrastructure on the cloud is different. You don't want to treat it the same way that you've worked previously. So going into this, a lot of the academic folks and myself had more experience with HPC. So our first sort of architecture for running analysis within PCOG was really setting up something that looked like a traditional HPC cluster. We run SendGrid Engine. We had Gluster running. We created these little mini clusters across the clouds and scheduled out work to them, as you sort of typically do. What we found, though, is um, in environments like Amazon where we're interacting with a spot marketplace and we'd lose nodes, or OpenStack environments that were created for PCOG and actually new environments, so they're still having sort of teething issues, um, these environments were not amenable uh, to running uh, SGE and having SGE lose nodes. So instead, we kind of shifted halfway through to an architecture where one VM processed one donor, ran one workflow, and at least that was a self-contained infrastructure. But we weren't particularly happy with it because we didn't uh, really want to work in that way. We wanted to work in a way that was much more nimble and able to deal with failure on its own rather than having us reschedule work that failed. So we ultimately, in conjunction with moving to Docker-based um, tools and workflows, we built our architecture, what we called Architecture 3. And the hallmark of that was each of the cloud environments we worked in, including Amazon, had a queue. And we would enqueue the work that needed to be done in that environment. And that queue was read by a provisioner uh, that would spin up VMs. In Amazon, it was spot instances. And those spot instances would have a worker daemon on them that would dequeue work and run the particular Docker-based workflow for that particular sample. Uh, what that gave us is a system that if workers disappeared, it automatically knew how to re-enqueue work uh, so that we could be very robust to failure, whatever that failure was. All right, so the fourth lesson that we took away from PCOG that actually turned out to be something that surprised most of the technical working group was really doing um, a, a sort of look at 
our expenses, looking at the institutes that built out OpenStack environments specifically for this project, and look at the cost of running on Amazon. So we used Amazon quite heavily in this project, especially early on to bootstrap our way into running. We could get running on Amazon much more quickly than any of the custom-built OpenStack environments. So we had a lot of information about the true cost of running this analysis on Amazon using the spot marketplace, and we had a pretty good idea of what the costs were associated with building out over the course of a year and a half or so to two and a half years was the, the entire lifespan of the project. We had a pretty good idea of the cost of building out our um, academic uh, OpenStack cloud environments. So there's an interesting piece in, in Nature in 2015, data analysis, create a, a cloud commons. I encourage you to take a look at it because this figure is obviously too small here. But the take-home point is when we did the math, we looked at building out infrastructure, staffing it up, keeping it supported, and compared that to running the same pipeline, the Sanger pipeline, on Amazon, we actually had an order of magnitude difference in the price. Amazon was significantly cheaper for us to do compute on. So that was surprising. At the end of the day, when we looked at the actual cost of us running this analysis on Amazon, it boiled down to only about $62 per donor. And that may seem expensive to some, but put in the context of the uh, $3,000 to $4,000 required to actually sequence uh, these samples, it's a drop in the bucket. So we're actually very pleased with the cost savings and the scalability, the ability to, to spike our usage in Amazon uh, that, was, um, that was afforded by this cloud. All right, so what about the, the legacy of the Peacock? We learned a lot of great lessons. A lot of scientists got to use cloud environments for the very first time. We saw that it was a viable thing for analyzing cancer genomics data in the, in the public clouds. Um, we're in the phase right now where publications are coming soon. So this is a very exciting uh, phase for the project. In terms of a legacy for the project beyond just the publications, um, the Amazon uh, AWS Public Datasets program uh, has allowed us to redistribute the ICGC PCOG data through S3, uh, S3 on the Amazon cloud environment. And I think that's really transformative. That and the NCI cloud pilots kind of give us a glimpse of the future of what it's like, what it's going to be like to work with large-scale data sets, large-scale cancer data sets on cloud environments. So this is great for a researcher because I can come in, I can identify the data and get a token that allows me to access it uh, from the DCC portal, dcc.icgc.org, and then I can go onto the cloud environment. I don't have to worry about downloading the data from EGA or SRA or some other repository, which many of you know might take weeks or months to do, and I don't have to worry about the storage cost of storing the BAM. I can just get to my actual compute on it. So I think those are very powerful sort of legacy um, items from PCOG. Um, in terms of what are we doing right now, um, between my group at, at Santa Cruz, between OICR, between a lot of other people that have contributed to the technical working group on PCOG, uh, the focus for us is to get our workflows um, that we used in PCOG shared. Obviously, we want those to be part of our publications. But on top of that, we want to take the tools and infrastructure that we built for PCOG and make that something that other people can use as well, that other large-scale projects or even smaller-scale projects can take advantage of. So I think there's three key tools uh, from PCOG or inspired by the work of PCOG that I think are generally useful and, and things that many people will find um, uh, useful. And those are Redwood, which is our file storage system on top of S3. That's DocStore. It's our platform for sharing Docker-based tools and workflows and Toil, which is coming out of the Santa Cruz group, this is our workflow execution platform that goes beyond uh, the sort of compute that PCOG did. So what I'm personally working on right now at, at um, Santa Cruz is taking all of these components that we built or were inspired by PCOG and linking them together in a, into a larger ecosystem. What we're doing here is building a system that by stringing these tools together, we can automate the process of data coming into the institute. And so it starts on the left-hand side where at the bottom people are submitting data to us. These are our collaborators. They're submitting data to us through an upload client that writes it into the data storage service, a.k.a. Redwood. From that, we've established a metadata standard and indexed that metadata standard to build a donor-oriented document that makes it very clear what analysis has and has not been done on that particular donor. And from that, we have an action service. Currently, we're using Luigi for this that queries our Elasticsearch metadata index 
figures out what work needs to be done, and then enqueues that work in our queue, which calls toil to actually do the workflow execution. So this system altogether is able to process data and hand it back to our collaborators, hand it back to other scientists at the institute. And in terms of the actual tools and workflows, we're placing those on DocStore to get the greatest sort of benefit from other people using those, those tools as well. So just to dive into uh, the details of the actual um, projects that I'm talking about here, um, the Redwood uh, system is a scalable storage system built on top of S3. It is based on the ICGC storage system that powers the PCOG data sharing through the Amazon Public Datasets program. In this client, it's um, quite different from the way that we worked in PCOG originally, where we actually had these SFTP-like servers that would actually handle the entire transaction and entire transfer of data to a worker node. In this system, the client running on an EC2 host will simply use a token to request a particular uh, blob of data, essentially. And that um, storage service that then authenticates that request will hand back a signed URL. And so the, the outcome of that is whether it's the client is uploading or downloading data is the actual large data transfer is coming from S3. And what does that mean? That means it's a much more scalable system than the approach that PCOG took that actually bottlenecked in many ways on the storage uh, transfer. Uh, since we're doing our heavy lifting coming directly from S3, it means I can throw hundreds of simultaneous clients on hundreds of nodes, hitting this and not see an appre uh, appreciable uh, decrease in the transfer speed. And this is an example of that as I'm adding more um, client nodes uh, that do simultaneous downloads, I'm not really seeing a degradation. Of course, this is why we love S3. We love the fact that it can handle so much data. In terms of uh, workflow sharing, um, we really loved the approach that we took with, with Docker. We really thought that helped the project, that helped to make our tools and workflows much more mobile. But one of the issues that we ran into is we didn't actually have a standardized way of saying this Docker image has this tool in it, it takes these parameters, and this is how you run it. That was something that if you go on you know, Docker Hub or Quay.io, right now you basically read a readme and you figure out how to run it. We needed some sort of standardized approach where we could have a standard that would describe how to run this scientific tool. And so uh, for the DocStore project, which is formalizing our sharing of Docker-based tools and workflows, we embraced the CWL and WIDL projects. So this is common workflow language and workflow definition language, respectively. Uh, CWL is its own op open source project. WIDL is coming out of the broad. And what these uh, descriptors allow us to do is have a very clear human and ma machine-readable format that tells us what the inputs are, what the outputs are going to be, how to construct the command. So we've essentially, through DocStore, standardized the way that we describe tools and workflows in Docker images. Now, as an academic project, we didn't want to reinvent the wheel. I'm sure almost everyone in this room actively uses GitHub and Bitbucket for storing source and maybe storing a Docker file. I'm sure most people in this room uh, use Quay.io or Docker Hub for actually building the Docker images. So that's exactly what we want to do on DocStore. We want to leverage those with DocStore acting as a registry that brings that information between Quay and GitHub together with that descriptor that standardizes the way that we can describe how to run that tool or that workflow. And so what we're doing with GitHub is we store the Docker file, we store a docstore.cwl or a docstore.widdle, and that um, Docker file is then built by Quay.io, which builds the Docker image and hosts it. And Docstore is really bringing those, those two things together in order to have a common view of the content of GitHub, the content of Quay.io, and that descriptor itself. So where are we at with Docstore? I'm, really, really happy to, to say that DocStore has actually reached its 1.0 release. So this is a production system. Multiple groups are using it now to exchange Docker-based tools and workflows. It supports a GA4GH standard that I'll tell you a little bit more about um, at the end of the talk. And it also supports the latest CWL. CWL itself is a project just released 1.0. We support two entity types. We support Docker-based tools. And we also support CWL and WIDL native workflows as well, which are modeled as documents. And right now, the Peacock group is really working hard to make sure all of our content, including the core pipelines, are being 
ported and available in DocStore. We have all of them except the Broad at the moment. So in terms of what the DocStore looks like, you can, you can look at it today. You can use it today. It's in production, docstore.org. Um, the site uh, has pretty much all the functionality that you need through the site itself, including search and tool management. If I dive into a particular page, um, you can see uh, that it describes information about the container. If the font was a little bit bigger, you could probably see that it's giving you information about who made this container, um, when was it made, links back to GitHub, links back to Quay.io, and description, discussion, sharing links. But something that's the most important thing here, one of the outcomes of standardizing on CWL or Whittle, standardizing the way that we describe how to run the tool, is it means that every tool or workflow that you find on DocStore has a common methodology of executing it. So you always construct the command the same way. This makes it so much easier to find tools and execute them in a consistent way. To facilitate that, we have a very lightweight command line tool. If you find something that you like on DocStore, you want to run it on your machine that supports Docker, um, this command line tool will help you to provision your files from standard URLs, pull the Docker container, execute the CWL or Whittle wrapper to essentially create a Docker run, and then provision the files back out. So this is a simple mechanism for you to use something today that you find in DocStore. What we're trying to work towards in the future is we don't want to be the only execution platform out there. We actually want Seven Bridges and Curiverse and other commercial platforms as well as open source platforms like Galaxy and Consonants to be able to pull and use tools and workflows from DocStore as well. So we, we hope that in the long run, our goal is to have DocStore tools runnable in a wide variety of platforms that allow you to scale up. So as a scientist, another feature that I think is really important about DocStore, something that came out of the Peacock project, is very, very clear versioning being extremely important. If I have a large cohort of data that I've run on a previous version of the pipeline, I may have new data that I want to bring in and use with that same version of the pipeline. So DocStore provides a very clear link between the GitHub code base, the Docker image hosted on Quay or Docker Hub, and the descriptor that describes how to run that particular version of the tool. And this enables you to find older tools, older versions of tools, and recreate um, or supplement um, existing data sets. It also has, um, again, bringing together the content of GitHub and, and Quay or Docker Hub. It's bringing together a single place that you can understand what the Docker file contains, how that particular tool was built, and also the descriptor itself, like how um, the tool is described in Whittle or CWL, what its inputs or outputs are. And finally, as a developer, if you follow our SOP, if you use GitHub or Bitbucket, if you use Quay.io, which provides us a nice API, uh, we can automate the registration of content from your Quay.io and GitHub account through the site. So if you followed our development SOP, which is a very lightweight SOP, you can basically gain the advantage of going into DocStore, seeing the, your content that was built on Quay, and clicking a button to publish it. All right, so what's coming soon to DocStore? Um, we have several new features coming up. I think one of the most important is integrating the concept of public test data sets. So if you find a tool on DocStore, I want to be able to run it with known good data, see examples of what the inputs and outputs should be. The other thing is we're actively working with commercial and, and open source providers to enable execution of tools and workflows from DocStore. That is an ongoing process that we're actively working on. And we're also looking at things like signing Docker containers so we have a chain of trust and cross-site indexing. So if we have many copies of DocStore running around the world, we want to be able to cross-site index them and show their content across the network of DocStore instances. So hopefully that gives you an idea of some of the, um, of the storage system that are kind of coming out of the PCOG project, the docstore.org, which is coming out of our sort of standardized way of packaging tools from the PCOG project. Um, I want to talk a little bit about how to do more efficient compute on AWS uh, than what we did with PCOG. So PCOG was remarkable in, in being able to run in so many different environments, but we really didn't explore to great detail the way of making those individual workflows more efficient. And TOIL here is a response to making individual workflows run more efficiently at a lower cost. In PCOG, we ran everything in the kitchen sink was put into a Docker image, one VM, one Docker image running, 
one donor was processed on that image. We want to do something more efficient where we can actually scale out individual jobs from a workflow and grow and shrink the cluster on demand in order to increase our, our turnaround time for samples. So the TOIL system is really built with that. It's built with large-scale um, efficient work on Amazon as the key sort of driving feature. Um, a recent recompute saw us managing a 30K uh, core cluster uh, and processing about 20,000 RNA-seq samples. So we're showing that we can actually do this sort of fine-grained job granularity, fine-grained execution efficiently, robustly, and at scale. So to give you some more details about what makes TOIL unique and special, um, some of the more advanced features, uh, unlike Peacock, which had very static workflows, TOIL workflows can actually be dynamic. The workflow can change during execution. This is something that not many workflow execution or workflow definition languages can support. Another thing that I think really makes it stand out is its ability to uh, uh, execute services for a given workflow. And the common example that we use uh, quite a bit at Santa Cruz is executing and creating a Spark cluster for the execution of workflows that contain Atom steps. So we're using Atom here to speed up our BAM manipulations in some of our, our pipelines. And it's taking advantage of the fact that Toil knows how to spin up a Spark cluster in order to satisfy the needs of those jobs. From a user perspective, a lot of people like Toil um, because it's just pure Python, very, very simple API. Um, you have all the functionality of the Python programming language. You can see here we're just defining a very simple task. We're uh, assigning uh, the word that we want to echo, basically. And we're telling it how much memory, how many cores are required. So we're giving those consumable resource requirements to our job and then telling Toil to execute uh, this mi miniature one-step workflow. So it's a very simple syntax, but very powerful because of its underlying support of Python. In addition, we're supporting various environments. In production, we're using Mesos workers on AWS that are provisioned um, in an auto-scaling um, uh, capability with, with Toil. Um, but other batch processing systems have been submitted by the community, including SGE, uh, LSF, and Slurm. So finally, I think that the key underlying um, uh, most important sort of um, pieces of Toil are its scalability and robustness. So one of the ways that we've made it scalable is the job store. This is the service that tracks the jobs that are completed and also intermediate files that are completed. Um, this is designed to handle many concurrent workers. Um, on top of that, we're using Mesos as our, our actual workers, and we've shown in testing that we can scale out through the auto-scaling code of Toil. We can scale out to about 50K um, nodes on Amazon EC2. So that's quite, I think it gives us quite a bit of headroom for scaling out our computes. And the workers themselves have been written in such a way to really reduce round trips to the central master. They're capable of doing their own scheduling on a node um, they're essentially able to batch up scheduling to reduce that, that interaction with a centralized master. In terms of robustness, I think what really convinced me that Toil is, um, is a cool project is seeing the ability to take a Toil cluster, absolutely destroy it, and then bring it back online and have it pick up where it left off. So individual jobs are checkpointed upon completion. This is fundamentally different than what we did in Peacock. If a given VM running a given Docker uh, based workflow for a given donor failed in PCOG, we had to start from ground zero. In this system, if particular um, steps fail because of a, uh, a VM going offline, because of spot instance prices, for example, um, the system is smart enough to checkpoint the previous jobs and resume where it left off. So that's very, very powerful in um, an environment where nodes may come and go. The other thing that I think is interesting here is the Toil job store is designed to work in a variety of contexts. We primarily use it in Amazon with S3 and SimpleDB backing it. But for development purposes, you can use a shared file system or a local file system. And it also supports um, emerging support for Azure and Google Cloud. <clears throat> OK, so in terms of understanding, does the system, I mean, it sounds great on paper, but does it actually deliver when we use it for large-scale computes, something on the order of PCOG or maybe even larger? And that's exactly what the group did. So about three months ago, we did a 20,000 RNA-seq sample recompute on Amazon um, EC2. 
And this pipeline was very straightforward. It's just using Callisto, Star, and RSIM in parallel steps here. And the data set that we were using is the TCGA data set along with GTEC, Target, and PNOC. And so I think this slide really, in a nutshell, underscores the scalability and robustness and why TOIL is the step forward for us beyond what we did in PCOG. So on the, the graph on the left-hand side, what you're looking at is that cyan color. That is just running the RNA-seq workflow as we did with PCOG, single VM running a pipeline for a particular sample. Um, the dark blue line is showing the cost of running uh, in toil mode, where there's an auto-scaling cluster behind the scenes. Nodes are scaling up, nodes are scaling down. And what we're finding is we're going from about $8 a sample down to about 385 or so per sample. All right, so that's a huge drop by just taking advantage of the ebb and flow of computational needs for a cluster at a particular moment in time. Another step down is actually then using spot instances and taking advantage of that robustness to failure. Spot instances, spot instances go away. They can be reprovisioned as the price comes back down. And with that, we're able to drop the pipeline that originally ran for about $8 a sample down to $1.30. So really just doing some very simple things, not rewriting the pipeline, not fundamentally changing the infrastructure that we're using, we're able to really drop the price down. On the right-hand side, what I'm showing is the cores used over time, and the two red um, uh, circles indicate where the spot marketplace uh, spiked, and we lost all of our worker nodes. So what's happening here is the system is recovering from that, it's launching worker nodes again, and it's picking up where it left off, ultimately to hit about 32,000 cores managed by toil. Um, what I think is really cool is in PCOG, it took us you know, over a year to do the analysis. In this effort, it was about four days to do the 20,000 because we could really spike our, our usage in Amazon and really take advantage of the scalability of infrastructure like S3. All right, so... I gave you an idea of what PCOG um, uh, showed the community. I think it showed a lot of cancer researchers that we could use the power of commercial clouds for large-scale scientific work. Um, I think that was a fundamental thing that came out of the PCOG project. Our current work on Redwood, DocStore, and Toil really formalized the lessons we've learned, and we've tried to translate uh, what we've learned from PCOG into things that other people can use, that the community can pick up and use right now. Our future work is to extend that even farther by focusing on how can we establish standards um, for Redwood, DocStore, and Toil so other, other groups, other efforts can implement similar systems but provide common APIs so I can use Toil and I can use other systems in a common way. So that's our, our current focus for our future work here. And this is all really um, being focused on by the GA4GH. So this is the Global Alliance for Genomics and Health. This is where our, our API standards effort is taking place. So I'm the uh, co-leader of the Containers and Workflows Task Team, and our priority there is to establish APIs that abstract and make generic the facilities of DocStore and Toil and these other um, pieces of infrastructure. So the first one we've worked on is the Tool Registry API. And this is just a very generic way of describing this Docker image is available. Here's its descriptor. Here's its source in Quay.io. Um, this API, we hope that multiple uh, uh, tools like DocStore will support it. And that way we can essentially have a federated network of GA4GH tool registry supporting um, systems so we can share uh, tools and workflows in a standardized way. So DocStore currently supports it, and we're working with Bioshadok and others for those repositories of Docker-based tools to uh, ex essentially expose their tools to the world using this API. So another API that we're working on through the GA4GH is the workflow and task execution APIs. And these APIs are essentially the same API under the hood, but what they're allowing us to do is to take a Whittle or CWL workflow or a Docker-based tool and actually make a request to a system that supports the API to then run that tool with the parameters we've, we've provided. Um, as a result, we get back a status URL, 
and then can retrieve uh, file outputs, locations, as well as standard error, standard out, the status, and, and that sort of thing. And so this is a, an area of active development right now to establish this API standard. We're hoping to have the first version of this API um, schema released in early 2017. As far as the tool registry API, that's already released as a 1.0 uh, schema release as of last month. So where are we headed? Um, I would love to have had this infrastructure, these standards, DocStore, Toil, Redwood. I would love to have had those two years ago when we worked on PCOG and we really scaled out our infrastructure and built out so many different tools. Um, in the future, though, I think establishing standards on top of things like DocStore, Toil, the storage systems, establishing GA4, GH standards on top of these systems, I think is really important because it'll enable future systems, future large-scale distributed uh, cancer analysis projects like ICGC Med to access a variety of tool registry, workflow registry sites like DocStore or BioShadoc. Um, it would allow us to schedule out workflows in a standardized way to, say, Toil or Consonance, FireCloud or Seven Bridges, and those individual steps can then run in a variety of cloud environments using the Task Execution API, driven by things such as cost and also location of data. So we're hoping that the GA4GH uh, standards enable this sort of view of the world going forward in the future, and we're working closely with a lot of these organizations. This is not necessarily a commitment from these organizations, but more of a vis vision of how this might work in the future. So with that, I just want to thank a ton of people with the GA4GH, in particular Lincoln, Josh, Gaddy, Peter, and Jan for leading the technical working group of PCOG, uh, Vincent for the storage infrastructure, Dennis for DocStore, Kyle for the task API, Peter for the workflow API, um, Jeff for um, the uh, co-leader of the uh, GA4GH uh, task team, and Hannes and Frank and the Toil team for Toil infrastructure. Uh, I do want to mention that these projects are all open source. We welcome your contributions. We welcome your use of these projects. We want people to use these. We want people to benefit from the infrastructure that we built for PCOG and infrastructure inspired by what we did in PCOG. So for more information about Redwood, uh, check out the ICGC DCC uh, Get repository. Uh, DocStore is in production right now. You can use it. Find all of our documentation on docstore.org. And Toil is something that you can spin up today, uh, write workflows locally on your laptop, and transition those to AWS following the guides on our Read the Docs. Um, at this point, I'm going to hand it over to Angel Pizarro uh, to get the perspective from AWS. Years, years of work. Uh, Really fantastic results. I, I, I love seeing the progression of good projects like that uh, develop into something that the whole community can use. So, so kudos to, to all of the international scientists doing, doing that work. Uh, my name is Angel Pizarro. I work with the research and technical computing team focusing on genomics and life sciences here at AWS. Uh, work with folks uh, across the globe on, on these types of problems. Uh, and given the backdrop that, that you just saw, uh, I want to give why AWS cares about these problems, what our perspective is, and, and sort of directions of, of why we do what we do, right? So enabling science. I think nothing is, is uh, more important to AWS than changing the world, and science is one of those areas that we want to change for the better. And for the previous talk, I, I hope you could recognize some of these, um, some of these features that, that, that uh, deploying to AWS enabled. Specifically, the scaling of compute resources only when they were needed to when they're actually needed, uh, drastically reducing the time to a result, uh, because in science, uh, really any single result is, a, is not as important as what comes after it and, and what you do with those results and how you integrate those results with other data. Of course, cost uh, uh, was greatly reduced, and it cannot emphasize enough what a game changer is to be able to securely share data in place uh, for some of these large cohorts. Uh, the download and compute model worked 
up to a certain point in the life sciences. Uh, it doesn't work anymore when your data sets are literally petabytes of, of data. So being able to securely share data in place, bring the compute to the data, is, is, a, is a huge change for science and, and one for the better. And also having a global community being able to access that data in the same way uh, should not be overlooked as well. So this is, this is uh, we have an open data program, and this is how we see the world. Uh, we really think that data is critical infrastructure for a lot of different types of sciences and businesses and software development and ISVs. Again, if your, if your project depends on a petabyte of data to actually work, then data is a critical infrastructure piece of, of what you're trying to do. Uh, for instance, um, the Exact database uh, proved uh, they had a very interesting paper about being able to look at cancer data and only sequence the tumor as opposed to a tumor and normal tissue so that you could see the differences. With this large backing database from a population of people, you can actually reconstruct what would be different if you had sequenced the normal tissue. And, and that matters because you've essentially cut the cost of sequencing a cancer genome in half. And that's really, really going to matter as we start getting genome sequencing uh, integrated within the clinic. So again, uh, we believe open data is critical infrastructure. Uh, and to, to date, um, the public data sets program, I'll use the mouse, is, is really here, uh, where we're creating uh, a place to put data at rest and making it available in place. Uh, the work that uh, Brian just showed is in this area where you have data catalogs, you have basic APIs to access that data, and the tools and visualizations to make that available. Uh, we have a little bit of complex APIs uh, currently under development uh, for working with the data, and so on and so forth. So where are we with, with bioinformatics? Of course, we have data generation taken care of pretty well. We can, we, can, uh, we can produce a lot, a hell of a lot of data with the current instrumentation that's in place, whether that's uh, Selexa-based sequencing or the newer uh, nanopore sequencers that are coming out. Um, and then, uh, as we showed with the ICGC data set and the PCOG data set, you can make that, uh, the, those types of data available at rest. Uh, we have groups like the Global Alliance really making uh, basic APIs that, that, that enable folks to talk in the same language and access the data in, in uh, standard ways. And then you have uh, data visualizations like CBioPortal and data distribution frameworks like the national uh, repositories like NIH and, and, and uh, the EBI over in Europe. Visualization, we do have some, some pretty good tools. Uh, you know, the genome browser from UCSC is one of the granddaddy tools. It's been out for 12 years, if not more. Uh, and it's still highly developed, highly used by the community. The rest of this, though, is really work that's under development. Predictive modeling, we're not there yet for genomics and life sciences, I'll, I'll be frank. Uh, complex APIs, there's, there's a few of them, but there's not really uh, a good sense of what, what is uh, capable and doable. Uh, consumer applications, uh, you're starting to get different, uh, uh, different applications of genomics in the consumer space, but uh, how useful that is is, is is still an open question. Uh, Data-driven journals, like can we, can we create public policy based off of genomic data that's coming in? For instance, if you're doing ubiquitous sequencing of, of sewers across a city, can you spot food deserts by sequencing the poo? Maybe. I think that would be pretty cool. Free idea. <laughs> so... Uh, you know, Amazon S3, uh, uh, I'll refer to the previous talk, uh, LFS 303, uh, about creating data lake architectures for science space. Uh, but we see uh, S3 as a critical component because you can start storing not only genomic data, but data that's coming out of your electronic medical record, data that's coming out of your, your family history from our smart connected devices, from more regulated workloads. Can you do passive monitoring of people, integrate that all within a uh, common data platform, and then start bringing in uh, tools from either machine learning or classical statistics uh, to develop new models of, of ongoing care and, and providing care. And obviously, visualization is, is a good uh, place. If you did miss 
the last session, 303 Life Science uh, 303. It's actually going to be repeated tomorrow at 3.30. So uh, look for it in your, in, your, uh, in your schedule. As I mentioned, the public data sets program does have the, the Cancer Genome Atlas uh, and the ICGC Cancer Data Sets. Those are two uh, separate petabyte-scale data sets. We're, we're working with the National Cancer Institute to, to make more data available. We also have some reference public data. So if you're an algorithm developer and you don't, uh, TCGA and ICGC are both controlled access, right? They, they are derived from humans. They are consented for research, but obviously we don't want folks to do uh, bad things with that data. So there's there's a minimal blocker to make sure that you're not you're not a nefarious person. Uh, but we do have reference data sets that are out there in the public domain, including the Thousand Genomes Project, which is, has actually 2,500 genomes, so it's, it's kind of a misnomer, uh, and Genome in a Bottle, as well as uh, 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 Human micro Microbiome Project, and, and also getting into the crop sciences as part of the uh, public data sets program. We also have earth sciences and, and other uh, data types for internet and social sciences, uh, like tax forms. So if, if that's your thing. But that's, uh, that's the picture with data. That's the picture with open data as a platform. Uh, we saw that providing that data on, on scalable systems like AWS does lead to different architectures than your traditional HPC cluster that has a shared file system, a scheduler, uh, a fixed-sized resource that you have to contend with other users. Uh, we saw over the years uh, refinement of the computational model to discrete applications uh, and workflows that distribute processes on a per-job basis. So, so what else is out there? What is the future for bioinformatics and life sciences? We're, and I'd like to discuss a little bit today about serverless science. Uh, again, I'll refer to a different session earlier today that goes into much more depth uh, about using Lambda for, for control systems. That's uh, Life Sciences 301. You can catch it on YouTube. Uh, but today we're, we're going to talk uh, about a few other ones. So this is a little bit slightly out of context. Uh, I, I don't have enough time to really delve into the details of, of AWS Lambda, which is our serverless event-driven uh, compute service. Uh, but the gist is you write a piece of functionality a very small piece of functionality and don't have to manage the servers to run that piece of um, uh, functionality. It's, it's a microservice. And AWS itself will handle the continuous scaling of that resource for you uh, and bill you at sub-second uh, metering. The key scenarios for AWS Lambda are data processing where you've got stateless uh, processing of discrete data as it's coming in, you have back-end development systems, so uh, being able to execute server-side back-end uh, processes uh, across the platform, and you also have control systems that react to data as the system change, right? So what does that look like for bioinformatics? Um, we have this uh, on, on uh, GitHub, our AWS Labs site. We do have a CloudFormation template and a, uh, a walkthrough that shows you how to do image thumbnail processing uh, based off of data that goes into S3. So you, you, we have CloudFormation templates that you send in an image. Uh, that image will trigger an SNS event, and we have Lambda functions listening for that SNS event that will create a thumbnail and put that thumbnail back in S3. And I said, well, that's actually pretty close to how genomics processes work with, with Oxford and Nano, right? Uh, Oxford Nano being a, a, a small thumb drive sequencer. You get data as it's coming off of the instrument in real time, and you have to call the DNA bases that you saw from event data, so electrical signals. There's an open source caller uh, out of uh, Jared Simpson's lab uh, called NanoCall. Uh, so I, I took the CloudFormation script, I, I forked a repository. I, uh, the hardest thing about this was actually statically compiling NanoCall so I could wrap it up in a zip and send it off to Lambda, but it actually works. And, and it took a few minutes of, of work and now you have a resilient, scalable system for dealing with uh, real-time genomic data. Again, if you have an air filter that's looking for specific pathogens that might be uh, brought into an environment, you actually have a pretty simple, scalable system to uh, address those needs. 
another case study, so we're looking at back-end data processing. Station X is gene pool platform. This is a, a case study that we, we, we recently released a few months ago. I believe that they're at the Converge Health uh, uh, booth, so if you want to talk to Station X, uh, please feel to reach out to them. But they essentially uh, created a, um, they wrapped a R function and statically compiled R within Lambda. So this is a rather large program. Uh, but they were able to fit that within a, uh, a Lambda function and, and use their control plane, which is PHI compliant, uh, segment out the data that's not PHI, send it in through to Lambda, and then get the results back. And now they don't have to run a fleet of dedicated servers, uh, which, which is a much larger cost and, and much uh, less performant than having it scale on an uh, as-needed basis. So this is a pretty interesting one. Uh, uh, you can read up more about it. But it, and it shows you hybrid architectures of still having uh, EC2 environment as your main data platform with a serverless environment that is handling data at scale. So uh, pretty interesting. And if you want to go uh, full control system, all Lambda uh, 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 group, uh, Ciro out of Australia, just released a complete uh, serverless uh, data processing for CRISPR-Cas9 searches, right? And what's great about this is, is A, there, there is literally no servers in this. It's completely a serverless environment. Uh, and they did some really interesting things because they're doing whole genome scans. And obviously, Lambda is a resource-constrained algorithm. So you have to segment the search database into lots of different uh, Lambda functions based off of the parameters that you get in. So the way they did it is they took a candidate CRISPR site, they did an immediate search uh, for uh, the template scan and gave it a score, and then returned that result to the user. And in the back end, they said, okay, uh, I am going to create a Lambda function to create SNS topics to do the full genome scan so we get more uh, resilient information on that CRISPR search that would give you off-target effects or other, uh, other likely sites that might be better, right? And then all of those results go back into, back into DynamoDB, and we have a polling process within this static S3 site that will update your result as these functions finish. So very, very cool architecture. I think we're going to see a lot of different architectures using Lambda within bioinformatics uh, and... Uh, Pretty, pretty cool, innovative work. So that's all I have for you today. I want to thank Brian. I want to thank the entire uh, research international community for making that resource available. If you guys have any questions for us, if you want to dive deeper on any of these subjects, uh, please save your questions. We'll be in the back of the room. Uh, and uh, have a good reInvent. Thank you.